Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today I talked with Alison North of the Rockefeller University and Kurt Anderson of the Francis Crick Institute about retaining the respect of your children. And I had to take this picture to prove to my daughter that I have friends. Core facilities versus academia. Kurt, I know that you weren't heading for a core facility when you left Salzburg. You had a very academic mindset. And turning down job offers. I don't know why I turned it down. I think it's because I felt it would have been admitting kind of failure. All in this episode of The Microscopists. Hello, I'm Peter O'Toole, and today in The Microscopist, I'm going to be talking to Alison North from the Rockefeller University in New York and Kurt Anderson from the Francis Crick Institute down in London. Uh, welcome, both of you. Uh, this is brilliant to talk to both of you. Obviously, I know you both quite well. I owe Alison a big favour because uh, thanks. I, I only have my job today thanks to Alison. I'm sure we'll come to that at some point. But guys, how do you, you know each other really well. So, God, do you want to just talk us through how you actually met to start with? Do you want to start off, Alison? Yeah. You start off. Okay, so, uh, well, we met when I, the short story is that I was a PhD student in Vic Small's lab. And uh, at the time that I started with Vic, Alison was a postdoc in the lab. So we overlapped in Vic's lab by probably not much more than a year, really. Um, but I was young and impressionable, and Alison made an impression on me. And uh, we stayed friends ever since. That sounds so wrong, Kurt. <laughs> I think I'll add into that one. So I actually, um, I didn't think Kurt liked me. I thought he was like the cool kid. He was the young cool kid in the lab who'd come in and was doing all this new fancy electronic imaging. And I was the kind of old fuddy-duddy electron microscopist. And uh, it was, I only found out really that where I thought he was the cool one, he was thinking that I was the cool one was when I visited him in Dresden when he worked at the facility there and I was on his advisory board. And it was when I met his wife, Anita, who became an equally good friend. And she was like, oh, but Kurt always says how cool you are. I was like, really? <laughs> and I think we became better friends after that, actually. It was, it was nicer and nicer. Yeah, there was probably a time where we, where we lost touch, certainly when I was working on my PhD, but we ended up, because I, I suppose we both ended up getting into facility management eventually, which, you know, obviously neither of us were at the time. And, and that naturally, then our, our paths started to cross more often and, and yeah. that sort of stuff. Uh, I, th I think that's really cool. So you both, so Kurt, you're obviously from the US and now working in the UK. Alison, actually looking at your biography, you were Yorkshire lass. So uh, actually, you come from where I am now, and then you flipped over to the US. So you kind of really switched jobs in a way. You kind of in the same jobs, but in different countries. So how, how did you get there to start with? So what, what did you start? What was your undergraduates? What was your degrees? Go on, Alison, what was your degree? Go ahead. Me first. Me first. Okay, Cambridge Natural Sciences, specialising in cell and molecular biology. The first year they ever ran that option with Ron Lasky and John Gurdon setting it up. So, so awesome. you 
first cohort? First cohort. Always the best cohort? Yeah. <laughs> Kurt, what about you? Um, so I went to the University of Maine and I have two bachelor's degrees. One's a Bachelor of Arts in German. The other one's a Bachelor of Science in Microbiology. And it was the German degree which brought me over to Salzburg as an exchange student. And then I had a girlfriend there and wanted to go back when the exchange was over. And that's what brought me back to uh, Salzburg to do a PhD. So, so originally what got me over here was the language. That's, pretty, that's, quite, that's two degrees are quite different degrees. Why did you switch from German and then go into life science, into, bio, into biology? Well, I, I was a microbiology major to begin with. And then I went on an exchange program and I liked it so much that I went back for a second year. So I, I did two years in a row. And by that point, I'd, you know, I had enough credits that getting the, getting the German degree wasn't really a big ask on top of it. So uh, you're both in core facilities now, which is, which, you know, it, it's, it's a different career job. But did you ever envisage yourself in this type of role when you started out? No. I never envisaged myself in science, period. And, and to this day, it amazes me that I even have a job. <laughs> Yeah, I was agonizing in my last year at Cambridge, science or music, science or music. Um, and I was thinking of going on to music college afterwards. But then my sister had gone to music college and she was like, yeah, I don't know. You might want to just keep it as a hobby. So what was your music then? What, what, what did you specialize in music wise then? Bassoon playing, classical bassoon. Sorry? <laughs> bassoon, the yeah. long wooden one. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just sorry. Well, that's your problem. Also known as the fagot. Exactly. In German. So you, so you chose the sciences over the music. And so, so what was your ambition? You, you got a PhD. You did a degree. You obviously did PhDs, both of you. Uh, so, what were you, so you've got microbiology, natural sciences, was it? So what did you do your PhDs in? What were their specialisms? Kurt? Um, my degree was in cell biology in the end. Um, I mean, Vic... Vic was a uh, had worked for years on the cytoskeleton. Um, uh, was really sort of an early person doing correlative light microscopy and electron microscopy. I sort of had a foot in both areas. And Allison at the time was doing mostly EM with Vic, and I I came in and did mostly light microscopy with the Vic. And uh, I ended up getting a degree then in cell biology, which was based on uh, keratocyte cell migration, actin cytoskeleton, and fish keratocytes. And Allison. Uh, so I did a PhD in cell biology, but I will admit something really geeky, which was that in my third year at Cambridge, it was the first time I looked down a fluorescence microscope. <clears throat> and I never had any ambitions, but I will say that I looked down that microscope and I was like, wow, this is what I want to do. So I took a PhD position in Oxford working with David Shotton who was getting one of the first confocal microscopes in his lab at that time. And there were two of us PhD students, me and Nick White, who sadly passed away last year. And Nick, um, Nick was great, and, but he spent his whole time actually getting the confocal microscope to work. So I couldn't spend my PhD using it because it wasn't yet really working properly. So I switched over to doing immuno EM, lots of gold labeling. And um, I happened to be at a conference I, had a, I actually had a postdoc lined up in Newcastle, 
pretty much. And then I was at a conference and I was sitting next to somebody and we were listening to a talk and it was a bad talk. And the girl next to me was going in German. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's pretty bad, isn't it? And we started talking and this turned out to be Annetta, who was a postdoc in Vic Small's lab. And so we got chatting and she was like, oh, you should come and work in Salzburg. And ironically, the technician in my lab in Oxford had always said, you should go work for Vic Small in Salzburg. So the minute she said that, I was interested. And then I just went to visit and applied for a fellowship. And that was that. It was just a weird coincidence. Can, can I back you up there, Alison? Yeah. What was that first confocal? It was probably a biorad, right? Yeah. MRC yeah, 500? Exactly. Yeah, whichever was it, 300, 500, I forget, the, the, like the very first commercial ones, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think there was a free, few precursors before the first commercial one, wasn't there? Yeah, uh, probably. I mean, I don't even maybe. remember at this point. Uh, but, <laughs> Tony Wilson uh, regales good stories on, on getting that to that point and how to get it to a commercial market, which is another story, uh, but quite interesting nonetheless. So, okay. I, out of those times, and you've now ended up in a core facility, Kurt, I know that you weren't heading for a core facility when you left Salzburg. You, you very, have a very academic mindset. Well, I mean, I did a postdoc when I finished my PhD, because that's what you do. Um, and I indeed went on to do that postdoc with Rob Cross, who had been a visiting postdoc in Vic's lab over the years, so I already knew Rob through my time in Vic's lab. So, you know, a typical kind of incestuous relationship. You go on to work with somebody that came out of your lab. And, um, and it was there that um, actually I met Joe Howard, who uh, was a newly um, designated or, or found or whatever, uh, director for the Max Planck Institute for Cell Biology and Genetics in Dresden. And Joe had the remit of, um, setting up the microscopy core. And um, I had actually already accepted a postdoc position to go work with Graham Dunn. And when Joe offered me the position in Dresden and I had to call up Graham who was really decent about it and say, I've had this other offer and I think I really have to take it. And he was, he was quite sort of understanding about it. And um, yeah, the rest is history, I guess. Yeah. It's a but you went on to a, a sort of academic leading research group as well when you were up at Beetson. Right. So I learned a very hard lesson in Dresden, uh, which was that they had offered me a position to um, run the core facility and set up a research lab. And after I'd set up the core facility, about two years later, they said, ah, actually, we don't want anybody running cores and running you know, research groups. And um, so, you know, always get it in writing is my lesson for everybody out there, right? And uh, at that point, I thought, well, this isn't the job I signed up for. So I started looking for jobs. I went on to run a lab and the core in, at the Beetson Institute in Glasgow. So I sort of looked for the job um, that I wanted. And actually, Michael Way and Margaret Frame were both very kind of instrumental in me getting that job. They knew Vic and they, well, Margaret was at the Beetson and, you know, that, that sort of discussion or whatever helped to get me the job there. Um, and then after, after doing that for 10 years, I thought, eh, actually running a research group is not all it's cracked up to be. 
And when the job offer came along for the Crick, I thought, okay, yeah, I was looking for something different and, you know, a new challenge and stuff. And so at the Crick, uh, I don't run a lab, I run a core. Good challenging job though. But I, I, Alison, I, you've ended up in an equally powerful and influential position down at the Rockefeller. Uh, again, running a core lab, which I think is a huge amount of influence over loads of research. So how have you found it sort of moving into that and developing that role? Because these roles were new when we started out in them. Yeah. How did you yeah. find actually developing the role? Difficult. So I came to it, I, had, I did two postdocs and then I had a Wellcome Trust Career Development Fellowship for five years and I was coming to the end of that. That was in Manchester. And I was coming towards the end of thinking, what do I do next? And people were saying, well, you should go for a senior fellowship or a lectureship. And, and I'd realized at that point, I didn't really have any great ideas of a research plan. I never had. had. I liked sort of pootling around, doing lots of different things with microscopes. And I was constantly multitasking and helping other people with projects. And I had a PhD student and I remember saying to her at one point, if only there was a job where you could just be a kind of microscope consultant, but there's no job like that. It just doesn't exist. And I seriously you know, believe that. And that was maybe about a year before I then um, had a phone call from, and here we get back to connections, another of the people who was in that first cohort at Cambridge in that first year of doing cell biology, Mike Rapp who then moved to do his postdoc at the Rockefeller and has been then at the Rockefeller ever since. He's now a professor and head of lab. And he had written and said, the Rockefeller wants to set up an imaging facility. Why don't you come and head it? And I was like, no way. And he's like, why not? I said, I'm not going to work in that crazy country. They don't take vacations. They work all weekends. They're insane. I am not going there. And I'm particularly not going to New York. And we, because I'm not a big city girl. So we argued for about six months. And then he's like, just come over and visit me. We will pay, we will fly you over. So I went over to visit in the plane. I remember distinctly, I wrote a long list of all the things they would have to satisfy or I would not go. Number one said, must have open air tennis court on campus. I thought I'd be safe with that in the middle of Manhattan. I arrived at the front gate of the Rockefeller. First thing I saw was the open air tennis court. And I was like, oh. And it went like that the whole time. Like every excuse, they just like, ripped it out from under me and so I ended up coming. So anyway, so then I moved to New York against my will and um, <laughs> set up the lab and I would say, so after two years, it was not going at all well. The administration at that time had this idea that they were gonna set it up, but they weren't really prepared to fund it. And more to the point, the professors and heads of lab were all used to having their own microscopes in their own lab. And God forbid they should be asked to share their toys. That was not really in their mindset at that time. So after two years or so, I was pretty down and um, feeling like it was a failure and never going to succeed. And at that point, I started looking at other jobs including the new up and coming job at York University running a facility, which I interviewed for and they offered me the job. And for some bizarre reason, I just thought, that's isn't right. So I turned it around and then, <laughs> and then they re-advertised and Peter got it. So just to make that clear, it was not that Peter and I were in competition. He applied after I had turned it down. Yeah, but I'd have um, lost it if it was. No, you wouldn't. I don't think so. But yeah, I would have liked to have gone there. It would have been, I mean, it was a really, it was a tough decision. I don't know why I turned it down. I think it's because I felt it would have been admitting kind of failure. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I stayed. Luckily, the administration actually changed over around that time. And about a year later, our new president was Paul Nuss. 
who had come over from the UK and um, being European was much more into the idea of core facilities and encouraging faculty to use core facilities and so it began to really pick up but yeah the first two years was a real challenge honestly are you allowed uh, Alison I don't know is this a family podcast are you allowed to comment on the value of an English accent in America <laughs> no I don't think so <laughs> that comment might be a little risky <laughs> Peter next question <laughs> actually I'm going to reverse that question how, how, how much of a handicap is it having an US accent in, in the UK? Um, well, Winston Churchill, right, said two nations divided by a common language. I mean, for sure, it, it comes up sometimes that, uh, uh, yeah, it, it was less of an issue. For example, going to, going to Austria, speaking German there, they speak with a very strong accent. But because my native language is English, I learned the Austrian accent, speak that fluently. I had no desire to pick up the English accent when I moved to the UK because, you know, I already had my own version of an accent. If I look back, I, I grew up with a real, I grew up in Massachusetts. I grew up with a really strong local uh, Boston accent. I don't have that anymore. So I guess my accent softened up over the years. I will say it is a huge advantage in the US to have a British accent. Everyone thinks that you are supremely intelligent. That's what Kurt is getting to, a quote from someone, but it's a little rude, so I won't say it. But I will say that, and he might kill me if he ever listens to it, but Paul Nurse, so while he was president, his secretary used to call me up and, and ask me the meaning of words because he would use these British words. She wouldn't know what they meant. She didn't like to ask, so she would call me and say, what does that mean, Alison? Well, one day Paul calls me up and he's like, Alison, is there such a word as blah, blah, blah? I think it was. I said, I don't think so. I've never heard that word. And he goes, no, I don't think I ex it exists either. He goes, I used it today in the academic council meeting. Everyone was very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> you can make up whatever you like over here. It's great. That, that's genius. So I was interested, actually. So you said you wanted open air tennis as one of your five things that they must, must have. Do you still play tennis? Not really, no. Sad. So what do you do? I work. <laughs> and then... <laughs> yeah, no, no, and? I know that's not true. Well, she does work in I addition do work. to... I do work in addition to other things. Yeah, no. Yes. I definitely yes. know that's not true. Yes. Sadly, that is not my own kayak because I was on a holiday up in the best place for kayaking in the universe, I think, which is the Pacific Northwest. That's off Vancouver Island where I had a humpback whale pop up 20 feet from my kayak last year which was awesome. Uh, I love kayaking. I now own my own kayak, which is up the Hudson River, which I love. I go biking, I go hiking. I am the queen of escaping New York City. I go, oh, you're hiding yeah, me. It's in the oh, you're still hiding me, there I am. That's me yeah, cross-country skiing just in Iceland. Yeah, yeah, that was one winter. And my sister took that picture of me alone on the lake. Um, so lots of lots of outdoor stuff. Bizarrely, actually, I mean, I, I'm in a ski club that goes up to Vermont. You can go up every weekend and go skiing there. So that's cool throughout the winter. And then the summer, as I say, I'm usually straight out and onto the water, either up the Hudson or around Long Island Sound or Fire Island. So actually, actually, I, I've thought of one other thing that I know that you quite enjoy as well. Because uh, every time I'm trying to talk to you, you say, "Oh, I can't meet until later in the day," and it is, isn't it? It is bird watching. Yeah. Summer tanager this morning. 
before work. Cedar wax wings bathing in the pools. Yes, oh. Central Park, thank God, has been saving me through this pandemic. I go up every morning before work and the bird watching has been amazing. Because there's no tourists. Usually you get thousands of tourists flying in from all over the world for the migration season and this year they haven't. So actually we've had the park to ourselves. It's quite nice. You see the wax wing. Uh, there, there has been UK record of that. Oh. Uh, but, but that was before my twitching days. So, I, so it's not on my list. Oh. Uh, actually see. Uh, Very pretty. Envious of that one. And Kurt, so I, that's a pretty eclectic mix. You do lots of physical outdoor type of things. But Kurt, you've equally got some interesting hobbies out there. So actually, I think this picture now is a view on your off-course mountain biking. Yeah, so that was in Dresden. I mean, I have to say of the, the places that I've lived, uh, you know, the mountain biking has always been an important aspect of it. Dresden, certainly in the years that I was there, which was um, kind of early 2000s, um, was a fantastic place for uh, mountain biking. The the Haida, which is the sort of local massive forest, comes right down into town basically. And uh, we had a hardcore bunch of guys there, the Mud Honeys, who used to go riding. That was really really good fun. Um, and Glasgow also really fantastic mountain biking. The only problem in Glasgow was typically the weather. Um, you know, I have a very distinct memory of mountain biking in Glasgow and being out in the middle of a gorgeous sort of natural landscape but the rain was coming down and the wind was whipping and it was just like am I really enjoying this <laughs> so moving down to London is you know the mountain biking is not quite as good but it's, it's not bad there's not certainly not as good but the weather's a heck of a lot better so, but do you, do you think the mountain biking as well that also came from Salzburg I think so when I moved to Salzburg Vic Small our boss went with me to buy, help me buy a bike. He wanted to choose a bike with me because he was a huge biker, is he? I mean, and, uh, and when I left, my, part of my leaving gift, I know, was like one of these devices to put around your bike chain and clean it and all kinds of other stuff to do with bicycles. So, and also cross-country skiing, of course, began for me in Salzburg. I mean, that was a, so it was a great place to be for that, wasn't it, Kurt? Yeah. So what else did you get up to? Uh, well, yeah, that's Dresden again. That's me and uh, Marty Sreko. Uh, I was in Calgary now. Um, we used to play bars and stuff around Dresden. I think that was my leaving do, if I remember correctly. That was sort of our final gig just before I moved to Glasgow. Um, and uh, yeah, the, 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 the take home message about that whole situation was always play with people who are better than you. And Marty <laughs> was really better than me. So we had a lot of fun. This is all on the guitar, yes? Yeah, that's me on the guitar, Marty on the mandolin, and basically he played like hell and I just got to coast along behind him. So those were good days. So if you're playing gigs in bars, you're playing for money or just playing for your beer? Mostly just playing for our beer, yeah. Yeah, which would have been, which would have been the cheaper option because, it, you know, I'm a bit of a lightweight, so a couple of beers would be a lot less than if they had to pay me real money. <laughs> so you both got musical backgrounds. I think it's cool though because, you know, I we always say seen as so studious. We, everyone sees us at work, but very few people see us out of work and what we get up to outside it. And I think it's good to see that, the, you know, we do balance that with hobbies outside of it. Uh, I would say a lot of, sorry, I would say a lot of scientists have kind of second things that they're really quite passionate about and really quite into. I mean, in Dresden, they had a chamber quartet, you know, lots of classical musicians you find. Um, hill walkers, hikers, skiers. I, I, I think it's quite 
probably a bit of a phenotype that if you're you know crazy into one thing, it's you're probably more likely to be crazy into other things too. Yeah, but do you think? But is it then a phenotype? It's interesting because then I was crazy into music, but now I'm still singing a choir, but I'm actually unusual in a sense in my choir community because most of them just do singing and music and I'm doing all of this outdoor stuff as well and I'm really much I've become a real jack of all trades so now I'm just thinking does that match with the core facility personality that we're more of a jack of all trades like the variety yeah that could be like I'll, I'll go with that yeah but is it because because I, I, I would challenge that actually because all right you're passionate about your microscopes and it wasn't necessarily the science questions that I think any of us found the most fascinating bit. It was the application and the methods around like microscopy and enabling that for so many users that I think is our passion. And, and I think we are not necessarily jack of all trades. We are a real specialist of microscopes and microscopy itself. Technology, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah. very kind of, you've got to have a bit of a kind of technology appreciation technology affinity on some level yeah be interested in technical things i think that even it didn't hit me until bizarrely about five years ago <laughs> when i've been doing the job for an awfully long time already and i didn't really work out why i enjoyed it so much and then i was sitting in, I, I developed this old age habit of falling asleep in four, four o'clock seminars you know it's a little bit of a problem but then i realized one day that i never doze off in the ones that are about techniques and, and applications of techniques. I doze off in the ones that are following one protein through cells and something, you know, whatever. Um, and so suddenly it hit me, I'm like, oh wow, so interesting. So that just engages my mind. So it's like you say, it's, it's more of the problem solving kind of side of it, I think that appeals. So, so what motivates you? What would you know, Alison, you must be an early bird, I'm presuming, if you're getting up to look at the dawn birds that are coming through and migrating through. Kurt, are you a morning bird or night owl? So I'm a morning person and I would have thought I was an early bird, Pete, until you told me about going out for runs at four in the morning. I combine two hobbies at once because I don't have time for too many. So I actually do my birding on my runs. <laughs> so, so morning birds. Alison, you morning bird, I presume? I wasn't. I became. No, I would never have said I was an early bird. And then... The first time I went to the Galapagos, that sounds terrible. I'm actually lucky enough to have been there twice. I went again this past Christmas. Um, so uh, I went in, the first time was in, the first time was in the year 2002, when I went on a holiday with the British company Explore. And there, as I landed in Peru and met my group, there in the, amongst the group of 16 people were Paul Ness and his family, and this was the year before he came to the Rockefeller. So that's a complete coincidence. That's the weirdest thing ever, and I didn't know why he was asking me all these questions about the Rockefeller. But anyway, um, but yeah, on that holiday, we would get up early, get off the boat, go and see things, and I just suddenly realized that actually you could get so much done in a day, and you could see so much if you were up and out early. And after that, I started getting up early and going up to the park before work. It totally changed my life, that one holiday. It was really bizarre. I never used to do that. Yeah, but I know both of you from conferences and actually it's important bringing Paul up again at this point. Networks are really important and networking. All our careers seem to have been through networking and, and following opportunities uh, and playing to our strengths and not just following the vision of what you think you're going to do when you do your PhD or postdoc, but actually seeing what you're good at and where the opportunity to, to apply that and moving through. And those networks have really enabled both of you to, to move your careers upwards. 
it's not favors it's just being in the right place knowing the right people and seeing the opportunities that i think have made a big difference to you both i i know from that network and that can go on to quite late in the evening as well so you might be morning birds but i know you can be night owls as well quite successfully well yeah i mean i think you really have to recognize the opportunities that are in front of you as they come and go as they change i mean as i mentioned going to do a postdoc with Graham was, you know, a really good opportunity. And then something else came along and you've got to stop and think, okay, you know, that's a slightly different direction than I thought I was going in. But all these people coming from Emble, setting up a new institute, I mean, just the excitement around that venture uh, probably would have pulled me away from any number of postdocs that, you know, I thought I was going to do otherwise. So I, I think, I think, there's an awful lot in recognizing an opportunity when it comes along and saying, actually, maybe I should do this instead. So I've got a quick one. What motivates you to get up in the morning? You know, you don't, morning birds generally have quite big motivations. They look forward to getting up out of bed. So go on, Alison, what, what? Oh, I like to get out and exercise outdoors and get some fresh air before I go to work. Yep. What's in my mind? I find, it gets me thinking, right? While I'm walking around the park, is is that in the shower? Is when I have all my best ideas for work. If I just walk straight into work, sit at a desk, I do not come up with good ideas or plans or talks. I've actually planned so many papers or presentations in my head before I've even got to work. Sadly, by the time I sit down, then they all go straight back out of my head again. But I have brilliant ideas while I'm actually walking along. <laughs> just then go again. <laughs> and in the showers, did you say? In the shower, definitely in the shower. And Kurt? Yeah, I, uh, I do a seven-minute workout Johnson & Johnson app every morning, and that does get me out of bed. So I, I need a few minutes. I like to get up early, but I also like it partly because I have quiet and you know nobody else is awake yet. You've got that time to yourself, read the news, think. I you know do my little workout and stretch and stuff. And... Uh, I would say what Alison said, a little bit of exercise in the morning and, or, and my brain is in a much better place than if I, um, than if I don't. No, I, I, I'm totally with you. I think first thing in the morning is me time. It's the time I actually have to myself and can think and can concentrate. But you said you get your best ideas uh, for your publications and so forth. So really nice question. What's your favorite publication? You've actually authored or co-authored. What is your favorite publication? Go on, I'll start. Kurt, this time. Um, or publications. I'll let you have two. Go on. Okay. If I, if I have two, I suppose one would be a journal of cell biology paper from when I was in Vic's lab, uh, Anderson et al. Uh, so it was, you know, that was a big deal for me at the time. And why? Uh, uh, where we described how the cell body of the fish keratocyte rolls behind, and we investigated sort of the linkage between protrusion at the front of the cell and how the cell body moves up behind. And that, that was, for me, that was just, you know, sort of pure discovery. It was really basic science. And Vic was, Vic was really a proponent of, you know, research for its own sake. I mean, he was completely and utterly not concerned about translational research, which at the time, I suppose, going back, you know, wasn't really a big topic then. And, and the other one probably would have been um, cancer research paper. I think it was the first big paper we had in, in Glasgow where we did... Um, photo activation and photo bleaching in living mice. So it was a sort of in vivo frap and, and photo activation. And um, I think that was pretty much the first time that had been done. And so, you know, we 
got the got to be there first and do things yeah. that people hadn't done before. And that, that definitely was part of the excitement on that. Yeah, it's a nice method tech. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was very methodological, yeah. Alison, same question. Go on, if all your publications, which which is your favorite? All right, I'm gonna come up with two again. So the first one was my first JCell bio paper from Vic's lab. <laughs> also my first paper ever. Also my first cover photo ever. And it was looking at, um, it was showing that you get stripes of spectrin and dystrophin around the membrane of smooth muscle cells. And the, I think one of the reasons I'm still proud of it is because the immunofluorescence images showing these stripes so you would take it in one color and then in the other and this was in the days it was all on real camera film so you had to you know wind back the film and then shut it down the exposure and get the balance exactly right and it was so much harder to do that than it is nowadays where you just take pictures on a camera and just alter them and then it also had electron microscopy in it and it was using Vic's crazy method that he invented of embedding in poly polyvinyl alcohol Bet you've never done this, Pete, as an electron microscopist. You embed your I'll, I'll tissue. I call myself an electron microscopist. Well, you have it in your lap. But anyway, you embed it in 20% PVA in water. You leave the dish sitting on the windowsill to dry out for days. And then you take this little slab and you, we would section it and, and float it onto a bath of glycerol. And if the glycerol was touching the edge of the knife, the whole thing dissolved the block. And as the sections came off, they crumpled totally. So you thought that you weren't cutting them properly. And then they became invisible. So you didn't know where to pick them up. It was the maddest technique you could ever have invented. Kurt will agree with me, right? Only, only Vic could have come up with this. I mean, Vic was in, he was so inventive and he was such fun to work with. We always used to, I would say, Vic, we have something to look at. Let me show you. Oh, let's go take a quick blip down the microscope. I still take a quick blip down the microscope always. And we'd run to do it and he would just make it such fun. So I love that paper. The second one that I, um, I think probably more recently I've transitioned into more educational papers. So my 2006 JCB feature article on, on, on seeing is believing, question mark. Um, a beginner's guide to image acquisition. And that came about actually through Mike Rossner who worked at the Rockefeller University Press. He was running JCB, which is at the Rockefeller University. And we'd been out one day, he was big into the whole problem of image manipulation. And he asked me to write a feature article about image manipulation and its prevalence. And I said to him, I don't feel most people are deliberately manipulating their images. I feel most people just are getting it wrong when they're acquiring it because they haven't been taught the basics of it. So he said, fine, would you write an article on that? So I did, it was painful, it was a painful process. But, since, but it was really valuable and people said they loved it. And since then, I've then got involved in various other educational ones, like one that arose from going to the OMX user group meetings and that became a, um, a collaboration with Lothar Shamala in Oxford and all of his team. And that was huge fun to get involved in. And then the latest one, which is our latest confocal review article that Kurt and I are both um, co-authors on, which is from five core facility heads. Which was published in? Nature Protocols. Oh, geez, you've got to get the plug in properly, Alison. If you're going to quote it, get a proper plug in and get that impact. Second cover photo. That's, I, I, that's a really great paper, actually. I shared that with my lab as soon as it came out on the preprint. The pre it was brilliant. Uh, that was all came about through networking. So I know Claire Brown quite well from networking. 
Claire knows James very well because they're in Canada. So James decided to write it. He invited Claire. Who else should he invite? She suggested me. He was thinking about Kurt. He called me up. What do you think? Should I invite Kurt? I said, absolutely. Kurt's an old friend. Do you think anyone else? He said, and I said, yeah, how about Graham Wright in Singapore? And then we'll make it really like around all of the, the continents. And But Graham, I met through ALMI meetings, just like I met you, Peter, through yeah. ALMI meeting. <clears throat> do you know, my, my, my biggest grant was also from an ALMI meeting uh, and talking to Lucy Collinson. And yeah, just, just drinking, talking, and the idea came up and we had about three weeks to write it up, submitted it, and it was, yeah, a real success. Best meetings in the world, Elmi. Elmi, yeah. Elmi, definitely. Yeah. So it's the one. I was there for the first one. Wow. Second. In fact, Vic sent me. Vic sent me in his place. Um, Reiner Peppercock had invited Vic to go to the meeting, and uh, Vic sent me in his place and said, "This is something you should get involved with." Cool. It's interesting. So we've got all these virtual meetings at the moment. Uh, and we think, you know, yeah, we could do more virtual meetings for sure, more virtual conferences, but actually those physical networking meetings make such a difference. Mm. She wouldn't get those, say, the same frame group, the same network, the same support group, which, which they end up being, unless they were really, you were physically there and eating and drinking together. So I think you can, I think you can work and use your network virtually, but to build yes. it is, you know, you build it on personal interactions uh, discussions had, you know, either passionate discussions or listening to somebody else have an argument or, you know, there's the, you need, yeah, I agree, Pete, you need that kind of sort of physical something to really be the foundation of a, of a, of a friendship or an interaction. And after that, you know, you can get together like this and because you already know each other, you can, you can go from there. Right. I think I've seen more of you, Pete, in the last three weeks than I've seen you ever, which is really nice. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> Great, but as Kurt said, I mean, if we had met at Elmi meetings, we, it wouldn't have been happening. Is this Alison, my wife would utterly disagree because she keeps saying every evening, all I am is talking to Alison North on, on, on Zoom about different meetings we set it up. <laughs> That's pretty funny. She doesn't get to um, see me. <laughs> She can play. Well, I, can, I can't blame her, but I'm just, oh, now, where is it here? I have to just quickly do this. Ah. There we go. Uh, oh, So yeah. this, this is at an airport on the way back from Elmi. <laughs> Pete impressed me because he is such a chocoholic. Let me just repeat. This is on the way home from Elmi. So this is the remainder of the chocolate in his luggage that he did not eat during the conference. There was a lot more, I think, went with him over there. Is that not correct, Pete? There's, there's always plenty of chocolate in my bag. I, I, if I go in my bag now, which, which I do carry, I just have it next to me because there's always chocolate to be had no matter what. Even though I'm at home, I still need it next to me just in case. <laughs> but it's rescued. Come on, we were at the airport, flight was delayed, we were hungry. Everyone had, a, everyone had something to eat. Oh, uh, now, it's, now it's my turn in terms of meeting. <laughs> this, this photo was actually taken exactly one year ago today uh, in Belgium for the VIB course there that Pete and I both taught on. And I had to take this picture to prove to my daughter that I have friends. <laughs> so she, my daughter, you know, knows that I'm a scientist and she, I think she takes a rather dim view of that. And, basically kind of feels like I have no lice, I have no friends, all I do is go to work. And this was me, my effort to say, no, look, I really do know people and we actually have fun together. <laughs> so, 
And I just want to point out there you've got next to you over your left shoulder as we're looking is another fabulous Karen Almeyer from Vienna, who we all know and love. Now, Karen, um, I'd met her occasionally at Elmi, but didn't really get to know her until I went to the OMX user group meeting. Now, here is something I find bizarre. The OMX is an instrument made in the US, but the US does not have user group meetings of people using their instrument. All of the user group meetings were held in other parts of the world. And so it took me going to Europe, like Karen's facility, to those user group meetings to really find out how to get the best out of my microscope. And that's how my collaboration really started with Loto. It was after he presented at one of those meetings. So yeah, traveling around the world and attending other meetings is just so important. Yeah, I think you could you could probably go off on quite a tangent around why it is that they don't have, you know, facilities and the same kind of support uh, in the US compared to Europe, right? I mean, there's a, there's a difference in approach. The, I suppose it, my reading of history certainly would be that the kind of core facility movement came out of, out of Europe and is, you know, sort of slowly migrating its way over into North America. I, I, I think the core facilities in the UK and Europe are not competitive against each other. It's a really tight knit community of supporting each other. You know, yes, we compete to a degree, but we're not competing. We always support each other in, in big ways. Uh, the meetings in January, the meetings at Elmi are, are terrific. Support. Yeah, so way. the facility managers meeting, the UK facility managers meeting, to which Alison still comes as, a, as an honorary UK member. Um, that's right. That's a very... Uh, fraternal is that the wrong word you know very community supportive everybody's there to help each other out sort of type of meeting yeah yeah and the commercial companies really helped kick that off as well because they just supported it financially it cost us nothing and they they sponsor it really as a, a way to enable us to come together because it's equally they're part of our community aren't they uh, we quite often see that the, the dark side and our side and the commercial side but actually the commercial side is very much you know in these in your jobs are very much part of the community they are equals and very, very important very important and i and i mean that that is an interesting difference so so first of all i don't want to give the impression that co core facilities in the us we don't compete against each other we all get on really well we just haven't really got to know each other there's so many of us and they're so spread out and the people from them tend to have their own pet meetings they go to cell bio or they go to neuroscience or they go to m m or they all have their own ones so there's been no equivalent to an army meeting which has been a lot of the motivation behind me setting up together with my colleagues bioimaging north america we've been trying to create something similar and um and also gary Lasky at princeton set up this north atlantic microscopy society meeting recently which again is to bring together core facility managers in a way like the fmm now what we've noticed so almy one of the things that's great about almy is the relationship between the companies and the and the core facility heads and that's pretty unique the way they they actually they're, they're treated very much as colleagues you've got the football match you've got the whole everyone really feels like you're working together and that's something i think we have not really done so well in the us people see them more as salesmen trying to make you spend the money there so interestingly one of the things i loved about the uk fmn meeting is the techno bites so the minute i'd seen them i introduced those to the woodhold course that i direct faculty Love them, absolutely love them. Gary saw them the first time when I did them for the NAMS, immediately he's been repeating them. Everyone is now copying this one because it's a way for the commercial guys 
they get a chance to talk about their products without feeling guilty because we're asking them to. We get a chance to learn about their products, yeah. but in a really quick, efficient, informative way. I love it. Yeah, I think for the facility meetings, it's really important when we set the techno bikes up, what we didn't want was an exhibition because then yeah. they had to stand behind the stand. We wanted like, to close the door. That we, had, we wanted to keep it going uh, so we could talk to them freely and they could talk to us freely. Uh, right. Which is why it works so well. But actually, talking about getting on well, you two, when it comes to su supporting teams, don't you oppose supporting teams? Go on. Oh, 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 I would have to have my hat handy <laughs> to do that, wouldn't I? Oh, my goodness me. Oh, cut. Oh, I get it. Sorry. Go get it. Go get it. Hang on. Go get it. Oh, he's let the team down there, hasn't he? he? Oh, he calls himself a fan? So brilliantly. Oh, Alison, there you are. New York Yankees? New York Yankees. Yep. So baseball Absolutely. Of your New are York we there now? Are we there? I would put it on except for my stupid... My bad. So, Kurt, who's your team? Go on. So I'm going to get my microphone back in the right position here. Yes, that's right. So... I have to say, Allison is an honest-to-God Yankees fan, whereas I grew up in Massachusetts, so I'm kind of a Red Sox fan by default. For me, the B probably has more to do with Boston. But Allison, Allison knows her Yankees. I was going to say, because Kurt was like, oh, I've lost my, my baseball cap. I'm going to have to buy a new one before the interview. I'm like, really? Because I have that one, and I have that one, and I have that one, and then I have my this and then i have my shirt and then i have the best of the lot number 42 mariana rivera greatest closer of all time i mean come on there's no bias there is there alison <laughs> what can i say nice okay i'm amazed you're not wearing you've got so many of those clothes i'm amazed you're not just wearing them today you can't have room for many other clothes in the wardrobe surely you told me i should look presentable so, so, so you oppose, oppose you, you support opposing teams, very yes. different teams, and, and you still get on well. Usually. Kurt, you always refer to Alison as EDN. Oh. Ah, yes, 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 yes. So what, what, what's EDN? What's behind that? As in, as in my dearest EDN, blah, 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 an email. Um, yeah, that would be the evil Dr. North, <laughs> which is, is not a nickname I made up for her. Uh, but is one that is I certainly found fitting. What can I say? <laughs> I can see Alison's going to kill me now. <laughs> I am going to kill you. Annoyingly, that came from Manchester and it started out as a joke. And then when he used it in America, someone overheard it and they actually took it seriously, but they also got it wrong and started calling me Dr. Evil, which was, it was really nothing to do with Austin Powers. <laughs> it was just, yes, the evil Dr. North. I, I realise actually we've been rambling on for ages, which is just it's just so natural to, to talk. I've got a few quick questions though. Uh, TV or book? What's your favourite? Book. Book, Kurt? Alison? Crappy TV when Crappy. I get home from work. I like it. So go on, Kurt, what are you reading at the moment? So at the moment... I'm working my way through William Gibson's back catalog, the guy that wrote Neuromancer and coined the term cyberpunk and 
Uh, I've just finished a book of his called Idoru, and it was fantastic. Really, really, really blew my mind. Really good stuff. And Alison, what is your really bad TV that you like to watch? Oh, at the moment, it's really good TV, but I've got one episode left and I'm going to be bereft. Uh, tonight, I'll be watching the last episode of the third series of Broadchurch, which I only discovered a few weeks ago. Someone recommended it. I David Tennant. David Tennant and mm. Olivia Coleman. Mm. I mean, you cannot beat all of the British detective things. Morse, Endeavour, Lewis, all of these things. I love them all. Good plug. <laughs> Kurt, I know you're a bookworm. I also know that you like Gogglebox. Yeah, Gogglebox is one of those things that should not work, but it does. Um, for people in the US, I don't know if they even know what this is, but it's... I bet a, not. It's a TV show which, where you watch people watch TV, right? So the, the thing is you're watching the response. It's like, it's like sitting in a room with a bunch of your mates and they're all chatting about what's happening on the screen. Um, and when I first heard about it, I thought, oh my God, why would I want to watch that? But yeah, it's, it's quite amusing. Yeah, I, I've got to say, if I, I, I heard about Gogglebox and I, I, I refused to watch it. And I recorded it by accident once. I, I must have been at the end of something. Can I started watching it? Emma was out, and I'm like, I was in tears, tears, laughing at it. It was so funny. When Emma got home, I watched it again. I said, "You've got to watch this." So yeah, I, I I rubbished the idea and then watched it and thought, "Oh my goodness, that works so so well." Well, it, it's been particularly good during the whole COVID, you know, issue thing, because you've got politicians on tv saying stuff that's just blowing everybody's mind and the people who are watching tv are saying exactly what everybody is thinking and it's kind of reassuring to hear other people saying you know what's on everybody's mind interesting so but pete so here's a detective do you know the, the show bones about the forensic anthropologist I, I, the american I, series I, bones I, i've heard of it i've not actually seen one okay so she's like completely geeky uh, but she would appeal to you. There was one episode, I'll never forget, someone said to her, what's your favourite colour? And she said, I think that would be 450 nanometers. And I was like, yes! <laughs> That's why this show appeals to me. Was it named Violet? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, Sorry. Moving on. Moving on. The thing that's really revealing about people as well is what car they drive. So, Kurt, go on. What car do you drive? I, you can give me a hard time about this. I don't understand. I love my car. I drive a 2011 <laughs> Honda Civic. It's a brilliant car. Yeah, it's very practical, very functional, and I'm, I'm sure it's still an old man's car. Yeah, okay, in, in defense, it's different than the American Civics. The, the European Civic has a different shape. It's, kinda, it's like a silver bullet. I love that car. I don't understand what's wrong with it. I, 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 yeah, I used to have a, uh, yeah, I used to have a Civic once, but I didn't tell you that before. <laughs> okay, okay, but okay. So the Civic is I, I, okay. You, you've got a really racy version, which you only get boy racers in, or probably fifty-year-old boy racers now. Uh, but then you get the uh, the classic one, which is definitely an old man's car. But go yeah. on. Uh, oh, see, that was my baby. Yeah, I had the. Well, you can see in the license plate the DD. Um, that was I had that car in Dresden. Yeah. And, and there's a beautiful story on that. Um, my wife and I were thinking about buying a car and we didn't want to spend much more than, I don't know, like two, 3,000 euros. What is it? What car is it? It's a BMW 635 CSI. It's got a sunroof, you can see. Oh, it's gorgeous. Leather interior. 
So, but the point is we were going to spend like about two or 3000 pounds. And for that kind of money, you can get like about a five year old golf or you can get like a 15 year old BMW like that. And that was a no brainer. And when I put that choice to my wife, she was like, Oh, let's get the BMW. And I knew, I knew I'd made the right choice. <laughs> Sorry, car or wife? <laughs> well, yeah, wife and car. Yes. <laughs> I think he got lucky because I've noticed here and on the previous picture, when you're playing the guitar, your facial hair has been interesting over the time, hasn't it? I've had, yeah, I've had some dodgy facial hair over the years. Mm -hmm. When I was in Glasgow, I had a pink goatee. Um, and that was a function of, A, my goatee comes in gray now. And B, uh, I told my daughter she could pick a color and I would dye it. <laughs> we, went to the, we went to the store together and she picked out this fluorescent pink dye. And because it was white to begin with, it took the dye really well. So I had a very bright pink goatee for a while, yeah. And Alison, what are you driving? My legs and my kayak, which is kayak. British, by the way. Yes, I have a British kayak, P&H. Fantastic, gorgeous. If you could have a line. car, what would you have? If, you... if I could have a car, I want, uh, yes, I, I want a nice little um, um, mini. I want a Mini Cooper so that it's, it's low, it's got a long flat roof, I could lift my kayak up on top without needing help, and it's cute. And lots of them have British flags on the yeah, A very the British lights. car that uh, is actually BMW, so actually a quite a nice right <laughs> against between the two. Just finally, you both switch countries and working in a different country. Would you recommend it? Yeah, well, I mean, maybe maybe I've made the better move. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say right now. Yeah. Right now, a bit tricky to recommend it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, the first thing you have to say, which is really part of the attraction of a career in science, I mean, you know, typically salaries in science are not as competitive compared to, say, if you'd gone into the pharmaceutical industry. But one thing that is a fringe benefit is the travel and the idea that actually you're supposed to move around, you know, I mean, during your, you know, you're supposed to go to different labs, learn new methods, learn new techniques, expose yourself to different things. And, and if you can do that internationally, then that's, that's just, you know, one more kind of boost, one more plus. So I absolutely would, uh, would recommend to anybody take it as an opportunity to live in another country at the very least. And you can see from there whether you like it or not. Absolutely, I agree 100%. I would say there's a misconception of people who say they want to go and live somewhere abroad for a year or two and it'll get it out of their system. No, 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 it won't, mm -hmm. no. After I lived in Austria and I moved back to England and then I was like, nope, got itchy feet again now, I wanna go somewhere else. Well, you've um, been there 20 years. Yeah, well that's not intentional. I meant to stay for two. I mean, I don't know, these things just, you can't control them. I would say, by the way, I don't live in America, I live in New York. Uh, and, and that there is a big difference. Where I work at the Rockefeller, I mean, I, all my staff are from different countries. At the moment, my staff are from Greece, Mexico, Poland, China, and me from Britain. So, I mean, four of them have got citizenship, three, three of them. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a really nice international multicultural place to work, which I think is important. I think I would struggle being somewhere where I was the only one from that, you know, from abroad and the place or something. But I mean, clearly, yeah, I did not want to come here. I did not want to pick America. Clearly, I don't hate it or I would have left a long time ago. I'm struggling with certain things to do with 
certain aspects of living in this country at the moment, but uh, in general, it's been a great opportunity, absolutely. And I've, I've got one final question. Do you have aspirations to change your jobs or are you actually quite happy and just want to drive that forward for longer? I'll go Alison first on that one. I keep thinking about maybe it's time to change to a different job. I mean, as you say, I've been in it 20 years and that sounds really boring. I've lived in the same building here for 20 years now. I've worked in the same place for 20 years. It should be boring. It's not because it keeps changing. So the equipment keeps changing, the people keep changing, the challenges keep changing. And now in the last few years, even though my job has technically stayed the same, I've got involved in all of these other things like Bina and running the Woods Hole course and all these things that just mean, actually, I'm just so busy. It's hard to even think about moving. I did think about moving last year because I just felt like a change in New York and I ended up turning it down again because I was just like, there's so much happening. I don't even have time to move. So I'm kind of torn. It would be fun to try something else, but I still love what I do basically. And I still love being at the microscopes and that I've realized I do not. The next step up is pure administration. And I still love sitting at the microscope and helping the users. That's why I still do the job. Yeah, I, can, I can hear my team now thinking, yeah, but all he does is admin these days. <laughs> <laughs> Kurt, what about you? Um, so I spent, I spent five years in Dresden and I spent 10 years in Glasgow. And if I spent 15 years at the Crick, I, I think, I think I can call that a career. And, um, in, in, in all three of those places, really, they were all startup opportunities. Um, you know, the MPI CBG was a new institute starting up. I would have stayed there longer, except as I mentioned earlier, the kind of expectations were slightly different. It turned out about the job in the end. Which, which moved me on sooner than I probably would have otherwise. The Beatson was also a, a very much in transition. They were building a new building, moving out of a kind of an older mishmash of stuff into a brand new facility. And, and the Crick is, you know, a very big undertaking. And, and I think it'll take a while before it reaches steady state. Uh, and I suppose maybe, maybe looking back on it all, you know, when things get to steady state, that's when I start to get restless. And, I think it'll be a while before I get restless here. I, I, but, you know, who knows I, I, what the future I, will bring. Yeah, I think microscopy is just an awesome place to be because it has developed so much and still developing that actually our jobs have not got boring. They've just got more challenging, uh, which is a good thing. So it keeps you on edge, keeps you current. Uh, so. but, but also getting back to what you were saying earlier, I, I feel like... It's not going to be a case of just saying, right, I'm deciding I'm now going to look for a job. It's going to be a case of something just comes along, unexpected, out of the blue, someone you meet, something, some opportunity comes up. And then it'll be like, all right, maybe now. So be interesting to see where you both end up in another five to ten years. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to talk today and have a chat. It's been brilliant. It's been inter interesting. Great to hear those careers developed and uh, yeah, just how your tracks have really moved between it. So that's a cool dance move, isn't it? For uh, Elmi, guys, next year. <laughs> okay. Elmi, thank you very good. much. Thank All you, right. Pete. Thanks a lot, Pete. Thanks, Alice. Bye. Thanks. Some good fun. Bye, Kurt. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, 
please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the dash microscopists.